Welcome listeners to Popscreen, part of the Geek Show podcast network, where the Geek Show's show that likes to shine a spotlight on the good, the bad and the ridiculous of movies, either starving by or about pop stars. No other podcast covers such a broad range of music from country and western hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and film critic for The Geek Show and Horrified, the British horror website. And I've been joined this week by... By Cliff Barnes, uh, host of the Devil Times 5 Horror Podcast, which is a a comedy podcast about horror movies. Nice. I mean, yours is a comedy podcast. We like to keep most episodes of this podcast light this week. Yeah. You know... (laughs) <laughs> we're going to do our best, listeners. We're really going to do our best. Hey, we recorded an episode on threads last night, so, you oh, know. Freaking hell. Wow, okay, fair Still enough. Got, there's nothing quite like what rewatching threads while taking notes to write jokes about it. <laughs> yes. Just having some fun and riffing on threads. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite funny. When you <laughs> anything can be funny if you look at it in the right or wrong way, um, but but it doesn't stop you thinking it's a fucking great film as well. Mm. Even mm. if you are looking for the funny bits, to I don't think we we didn't take the piss out of the film at all. But no, you know you can find you find amusement in anything. As anyone who's ever been down a pub with their mates knows. Yes. This week, we're covering Ben Drew's directorial debut, Ill Manners, which combines a famously tough musical genre, grime, captured right at the beginning of its commercial breakthrough, with a similarly unfriendly cinematic subgenre of British social realism. It was nevertheless a substantial hit, both in film form and as a tie-in album released under Drew's alter ego, Plan B, buoyed by an uncanny topicality that saw it released one year after the 2011 English riots. Despite this, I found it slightly hard to track down. I had to order a DVD off Amazon, which left me with an Amazon recommendations list that is like full of Noel Clark films now, which right, is yeah. probably enough to get me cancelled, and rightly so, I think. <laughs> I welcome it. Um, sorry, are you saying that you, you welcome being cancelled or you welcome Noel Clark being cancelled? Well, both, actually, as it turns you, you out. Would, you'd welcome being cancelled? I mean... I think I've earned it. You're the, you edit this podcast, though. So <laughs> you, <laughs> if you leave something in that's, that will cancel you, then that, that's a real cry for help. I'm just worried that one day I'll leave my laptop behind and someone will open it up and see my email and say, oh, let's have a look at what he's been ordering off Amazon. 4321? Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, but whereas I uh, would, would order box set DVDs of 321. <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe that's... Big game show fan. That's Noel Clark's comeback, maybe. He's going to be tapped for the reboot of 321, which is probably coming on day <laughs> fairly soon, isn't it? Oh, I've, I've wanted to bring back 321. I say I've wanted to bring back like I'm some fucking <laughs> big shot TV producer. But it would be the perfect Saturday night uh, shiny floor show. And mm, absolutely you know, yeah it's, it's a variety show you get like whatever acts are big actors pop stars um you know magicians whatever and it's 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 a quiz it's a game it's a show it's all in one it's three two one <laughs> could have brought it back when dan brown was big because some of ted rogers questions were like 
cracking some sort of hermeneutic code to find out secrets about the gospels i mean they were pretty involved mm, yeah oh yeah, yeah. there's uh they're very cryptic um i think the first episode was it was janice long the future dj won a st bernard dog a live <laughs> no st way. bernard dog that was the prize she won um there was a, an episode that challenge um, never repeated because it, the subject matter, the theme of the evening was the British Empire <laughs> and uh, <laughs> had some very dodgy sketches. <laughs> oh, God. And um, did you know that the whole format was, I uh, believe, created and originally presented in Spain by the guy who went on to direct the film um, Who Can Kill a Child? Really? Did he yeah. work with one too many annoying kid contestants? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, it's a great film. It's a great game show. So maybe he was just multi-talented Renaissance man. Maybe. Of Spain. Yeah. Much like, would you say, Ben Drew? I would, actually. Um, I think he's a bit too much of a Renaissance man when it comes to his music. Because mm. I love, love, love his early stuff. I got into him in about 2005. Um, well, probably was 2005, because that's when Sick to Death appeared on the second Run the Road compilation. Hmm. Um, so that's where I first came across him. Um, love all his early work um, when, you know, he was doing like just the nastiest, but also very funny um, hip hop, grime uh, tracks. He's, he's, he's a, his, his music is brilliant, his beats are brilliant, and his, his rhymes and his lyrics are just insanely horrible. Um, mm. He fi fires out the the, the F and C words like they're going out of fashion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, then, of course, there's um, 2010. He decided to do a kind of Motowny soul album, mm. which yeah, the defamation of Strickland Banks, which I just I don't know. I just don't like it. It's it's horrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> his next album was the soundtrack to Ill Manners, so that's good. That's that's a good album. Uh, his most recent one from 2018, Heaven Before All Hell Breaks Loose. Um, it's just kind of pop rock. It's all right. It's not very distinctive. There's a few few good um, hip-hop uh, hip moments, like where he, you know, you go, oh, yeah, the, the old Plan B is back. But then yeah. like, there'll just be some dreary, dreary pop rock, pop rock song. Fortunately, there's still no sign of his uh, White Man's Reggae album that he's been threatening for years. The what? Ballad of Wait, Belmarsh. no, I hadn't heard about that. Oh, it was going to be the sequel to The Defamation of Strip and Banks, I think. Um, oh, man. The Ballad of Belmarsh, or the, the next chapter in Strickland Banks' story, but as a reggae album. Wow, I didn't know mm. that. Um, yeah. I remember him talking about the Strickland Banks follow-up when he was promoting uh, Heaven Before All Hell Breaks Loose, and he just said he, he felt like one of those comedians who gets identified with one catchphrase. You know, he just wanted to kill Strickland Banks and never see that guy again. Hang on, what was Strickland Banks' catchphrase? <laughs> what <was> his... <laughs> Locks a lummy, I'm in jail for a crime I didn't commit. Yeah, another classic plan B laugher there, I think. Uh, no, if, if he's got a catchphrase, it's definitely got cunt in it. But, <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> but that was... That career takes you through some interesting kind of territory for British urban music. So I remember at the time, uh, Who Needs Actions, when You've Got Words came out, there was a consensus growing around grime, around the early Dizzy Rascal stuff and everything surrounding that, that 
that was saying, okay, this is obviously really good and it's a real step forward for British hip hop. So why isn't it selling? And I think by the time Ill Manners had come out, it had started to break through in the mainstream, but certainly when Who Needs, Who Needs Actions, when he got words came out, Grime well, two... was critically lauded, but never sold. Yeah, well, there's two been two phases of Grime, haven't there? There was mm. the, the one back then in the noughties, um, going back earlier, I'm sure. Uh, and then uh, the, the current wave where, like, you know, this fucking top five records coming out your ass. Yeah, uh, yeah. But in between, in between was that bit where the likes of Tintry Strider, Tiny Temper, Dizzy Rascal even, uh, went pop. And yeah. Skepta, I mean, if you listen to Skepta's records from around that time, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, an ab- it's an abomination, a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, it had to, I think it had to go wrong to find its way back in, into, you know, actual huge success. Yeah. And Strickland Banks it was, was part of that interregnum. And I must say I'm much fonder of Strickland Banks than you, but I can understand seeing it as kind of a cowardly move. It's like he mm. positioned himself on the most extreme end of a form of music that at that point was too extreme for the charts. Yeah. And then he took a few years off and thought, you know what I've always liked? The Temptations. (laughs) Wearing a suit. (laughs) Having a crew cut. Yes. (laughs) No. No. I I just don't, I can't get on board with that. Yeah. I was just, I was just starting to listen to that album again, just before we started recording, just to go, maybe, maybe, maybe it was me. Maybe I should give it another go and three tracks in. I'm like, no, this is just not good. And then I put on the, um, because the third track is uh, Stay Too Long, which is the hit off it. Mm. And, I thought, oh, well, uh, Pendulum did a remix of that. Maybe the maybe I always quite like the Pendulum version, and um, no, the Pendulum version isn't even doesn't even save it. It's um, I'm sure Chase and Status did a remix, which might have been good. I don't know. I'll have to look it up. But Ill Manners, uh, we should talk about Ill Manners because this this was was this conceived as a kind of a music film hybrid project, or did one grow out of the other? I've never quite found that out hmm um i don't know is the answer mm. uh i i guess well i'll tell you what there's um have you seen the short film um michelle which yes. is about seven, yeah. 17 minutes long and basically is in its entirety remade as a, a storyline in in ill manners yeah um now that is um broken up by a different song that doesn't appear on ill manners uh, called Michelle, mm. um, with which has Plan B on screen and his and his beatboxer Killer Keller is that his name, um, as like uh, kebab shop workers uh, dancing in their little kebab shop aprons and uh, well, I don't know their aprons but their kebab shop uniforms, baseball caps and that, um, and it, it's that feels like an extended music video, yeah, with lots of you know drama dialogue bits. But it, and, and yeah, I, I was wondering when I was watching that, is that, was that conceived as a long form music video or as a film that, where he'd get to show off his musical talent as well as his, uh, direct, his flourishing direct, directorial talent? Strange thing about that film is that um, I think the acting in it, even though Ed Screen 
and Anushka, uh, what's her name? Anushka Mond mm. return in Ill Manners playing the same characters. I think they're pretty bad in it, especially Anushka Mond. But it is made up by the fact that um, Neil Maskell turns up playing Terry at the end. Yes, yeah. But that's a, that, that's a kind of experience thing, I guess, because there is, uh, I reread some of the reviews um, from around the time that Ill Manners came out. And a lot of them say, oh, it's got this mix of like professional actors like Riz Ahmed and Natalie Prass, but also newcomers like, and it will name some of the people who were were new at the time. And one of them is Ed Scrine, which I was surprised mm. by, because of course now he's a pretty well-established screen presence. I mean, God, he's been in a Barry Jenkins film, for God's sake. And um... Has he? I, I can't say I've followed his acting career. Um, the only th- other thing I know him from is yeah. off um, Plan B's first um, mini album it's time for plan b he's, he's a feature on a track on that they've got a really cool duet uh called what's it like what's it like to kill a man um and uh it's about um plan b is being uh which way around is it one of them is kind of hoodwinking the other into persuading the other into stabbing some guy shanking some guy mm. um and, and then it turns out at the end of the song that this guy was all in his head and he was he's just done it off his own back but he's he's mental basically i'm yeah. sure it's a very sensitive depiction of um paranoid schizophrenia <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> it's, um yeah it's a great song that's the only other thing i know it's been from oh right i because I, I assume that's who he was back then i first encountered him through his acting i think he had he had some notable duds when he first came out he was in uh didn't they try and reboot the transporter with him in the Jason Statham role? Which was anyone crying out for a reboot of the transporter? You know, it's it's one yeah, of those things. Bell. Yeah. They, they, they look best on films, transporter. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they weren't directed by him, but he produced them through. Oh, he produced them, right? Okay. One of the sort of many French directors he has as sort of marionettes that he has. Um. I feel it should be a bell every time we mention someone who's been cancelled. So that'd be the second one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the good old cancelled alarm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we've just done a Michael Jackson episode too. Yeah, God, yeah, yeah. Could have used that. God, um, I watched Moonraker, uh, Moonraker, Moonwalker so much when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> also Moonraker, I, I imagine. Moonraker is a pretty good film to watch when you were a kid uh, as well. I've seen it. I've seen that once. Not, not, never been into James Bond. For yours yeah. only is the only good James Bond film. Um, <laughs> anyway, my stupid opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he, Ed Skrine popped up in If Beale Street Could Talk as okay. one of the cops who uh, arrested the lead uh, again for a crime he didn't commit. A very Strickland Banks ish storyline. Um, but yeah, he was really credible in that. He was really good. And he also earned some brownie points by walking off the Hellboy reboot. Not just because it was the Hellboy reboot, although that would be, you know, a valid reason to do it. Mm-hmm. But he found out that he'd been cast as a character who was Japanese in the comics and thought, ah, no, I don't actually oh, yeah. want to be complicit in whitewashing this thing. So yeah, I think he's going in a good direction. All right. What was Layla Morse's character in the comics? <laughs> I'd forgotten she was in it actually. Yeah, what a very <laughs> odd moment. Yeah. I've not seen it. I've seen the trailer and I know Layla Morse was in it, and that's all, all I remember about uh Neil Marshall's Hellboy. 
I think it's probably all Neil Marshall remembers about Neil Marshall's hell by, by all accounts. <laughs> but yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, ill manners. I'll tell you what. It's I of, of as it, as you know, I review everything I watch on Letterboxd. Mm, yeah. As as you seem to as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am very stingy with my five star ratings, mm. and there are only. 27 films at present that have the five star rating from me and ill manners is one of them it's in my official top 27 of all time uh <laughs> couldn't tell you whereabouts in the 27 but it's uh around the middle i would say yeah um it's one of i'm a cold-hearted bitch i <laughs> never feel anything right i yeah. what about you know Films, world events, personal life, nothing. <laughs> you know? Never, nothing negative. I don't feel anything negative about anything, apart from, you know, anger at the government and all that kind of shit. But, you know, that yeah. goes without saying. Um, but one of the reasons I love Ill Manners is because it does make me feel something. It does make me feel a bit sad. It makes me feel a bit, you know, it, it gets you in the gut, it gets you in the heart. Um, other, and there are other films, uh, in my my uh, you know exclusive five star list mm. that are there for the same reason like you know dancer in the dark Carrie of course landmine goes click um, they're just films that you know just really hit you yeah yeah no absolutely and I, I suppose we're, we're getting onto this topic of the I think you've called them haven't you the British misery dramas which isn't the official oh, yeah. genre designation but it's such a good one that I want to see we, we should see if we can make it standard i think yeah it's a, it's a genre you don't really like isn't it and you've been it is yeah been, been I, dipping your dipping your toe into and seeing if you can get on with them yeah yeah so i have I'll, i have big problems with them and i think i could sort of see it a bit when i had that season uh last year of rewatching yeah. them i think part of the problem is that in the past, when you look at like the great works of the genre, like Kathy Come Home, or I mean, throw a dart at a wall full of Alan Clark film titles, and you'll hit an absolute classic. Mm -hmm. Part of the strength of them is that they could indulge in a kind of systemic critique. They could, you know, it's it's like uh, George Buchner's Wojciech. You know, it could show you a character, it could show you his boss. And it could show you how the system represented by the boss works on that character. And by the end of Clark's life, you've started to get this new form of government where any sort of power, whether it's financial power, government power, corporate power, is as distant from ordinary people's lives as it possibly can be. And I don't think British social realism has really reckoned with that yet i think when you take the power structure out of british social realist film it is what its detractors accuse it of often it is just misery tourism sometimes um yeah um but that's what i like and i don't know if i say that <laughs> because you know i live in a, a a life of privilege and that um and haven't really been at the bottom of the heap um mm. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to call myself middle class, but I'm definitely from a middle class background. I just don't. It's, it's, it's. I don't know. Am I ashamed? It's not. It's not a way of I think of myself. I'm. I don't know if I'm middle class, working class, whatever. It doesn't really. But that's the sort of thing. 
I think someone I, with middle class skills and shame would say, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm working class by wearing a pink stripy shirt, so I can understand both sides of this debate. <laughs> um, I, I, I went to, you know, fairly posh schools, mm. but I ended up, you know, buying a pub, um, liking... <laughs> like in grime music <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know what 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 i don't know how you determine class in this day, day and age mm-hmm. um uh but i no, i do like um is there such a thing as a british misery drama about middle class people i think i'm I don't know. I'm sure it's... some of Mike Lee's films aren't always about the people who are on the absolute breadline, are they? Something like no. uh, Another Year is, I guess, a, a middle-class misery film, maybe. Okay, I haven't seen that one. Um, I, I, it just makes me think of like how he uh, portrays the middle-class people in High Hopes. Um, of oh, Abigail's that... Party. Or I mean, the, party, yeah. thinking about it, the obvious example. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But then, the, as as figures of fun, as comedy. Not yeah, as, I guess. As, yeah. yeah. No, the and, middle um, classes aren't miserable enough. I think we've established that. Um, yeah. You can't really imagine an, a middle class ill manners, can you? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I got on. Interesting pretty... experiment, though. Yeah. Mm. What would what would <laughs> the major traumas in a middle class neighborhood be? I don't um, know, but I'm sure I'm sure all the uh, songs introducing the characters would be by Chris Martin. <laughs> yeah. My God, if that isn't bleak, I don't know what yeah. is. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing, actually. We should mention that probably because part of the reason why this punched a bit above the sort of British misery drama standard for me is that you do have these extraordinary sort of Greek chorus style musical numbers where each character gets their own uh, their own track to introduce them. And it does it doesn't swing fully into music video mode. It is still narrative, but mm-hmm. there is a kind of hybridization there that I found really exciting. Yeah, they tend to be flashbacks just r- running through the things that have gotten to this point in their life. Yeah. Um, they're all absolutely miserable. Yes, absolutely. Um, they're yeah. Horrible stories, like down to a T. Uh, but yeah, but that but that is um Plan B's lyrical style, just describing horrible things that have happened to people. So it fits perfectly with uh I mean, I think it's like I think this film is the best kind of um translation of a musician's style to the narrative drama form format. It's like it's just because he because he traded so much in his early days in like harrowing drama and horrible violence and sick humor. It's mm. all there in the film, and and when it bursts into these music video sections, it it just yeah it, it comes alive and it well it comes it's always alive all the way through, but it really you know flies. Yeah, the only thing Balls. I can think of that's really comparable to it in terms of having a drama that is kind of musical, uh, kind of a musical, but also kind of not, and does, as you say, translate a musician's vision to the screen into actual drama, is True Stories, the Talking Heads movie. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, it's wonderful. It Tonally, the complete opposite to this. True Stories is as life-affirming as this is depressing, but... Okay. 
it's an it's an absolutely wonderful film and it is David Byrne through and through. It could not be any more David Byrne. I've got to be honest. I thought you meant Alan Bennett's talking heads. I found myself asking, <laughs> is this really my beautiful home? And how did I get here? Um, yeah, so I was picturing something extremely different. <laughs> This is Beryl Reed in it, Thor Heard, one of them. <laughs> I'd love to see Thor Heard in this. I think that was a casting trick that Ben Drew missed. Oh, please not as one of the prostitutes. <laughs> um, yeah, there's not there's, well, there's not there's not much um space for an elderly woman in a mature lady act, actor in this uh, film, is there? Not entirely. It's, uh, no, it's it's no, a very it's, very, it's a very young film, very young. Yeah. I think the one more senior role is Keith Coggins. Yeah. Who I I was astonished when I looked that guy up because I thought this must be one of those sort of British character actors who specializes in gangster films and is, you know, perfectly good at what he does. I don't watch many of those, so I'm not familiar mm. with him, but man, he's good in this. And then I look him up. No, he's uh, Ben Drew's godfather, not an actor at oh, all. Wow. And he's, oh, wow. Did He's just fucking great, isn't he? He really is. He just seems such a natural. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah, he's great. Um, even if the first time you see him, he's bobbing up and down doing fairly unconvincing sex <laughs> to, to poor Michelle. I mean, I think there is maybe a certain type of Londoner where if you are, if you say to them, just oh, pretend to be a gangster, they can do it bang on. It's just something that they teach kids in London schools, I guess. But even with right. that, he is uncannily good, I think. Oh, I think you're right, but I think you're also flattering me because I am from South London. Oh, really? I don't, I don't know if I could do that. Um, I'd, love to. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to be able to act, but I just don't think I'd love to give it a go. I think maybe when I'm older... I could. I, I'm going to get into Amdram and see if I'm any good at it. Yeah, never too late. I think there's a there's a whole class of actors who maybe should just skip the young part of their career entirely and just turn up as a grizzled old character actor because it's obviously what they're good at. Well, I'm glad you think I'm going to end up grizzled. Thanks for that. <laughs> I like the word grizzled. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd like to be grizzled. It's fine. Harry Dean Stanton carried it off very nicely, I thought. I don't think I'd like to look like Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> I don't think some of us have a choice in the matter. I don't know. I don't know. I was, I was up in... Um, I, won't, I won't say just in case it offends your audience. I was up somewhere in a different part of the country that weekend <laughs> and... Um, I met a couple of people who were uh, round about my age, 143, 147, so two years either side. Both looked 60. So, yeah. You know. But, yeah, that, that is the thing that I found as I, so I'm in my late 30s now, and I have noticed that when I meet people my age, they either look radically younger than me or radically older than me. It's the age at which you, you've, it all goes haywire. You can't tell how old someone is anymore. No, you really can't. 
Um, mm. Mind you, that, that was the case back in the day because like sometimes you see some films from the sixties or whatever, and it's like there's an old woman in it, and then you look her up and she was forty. <laughs> well, it always reminds me of when uh, when they did a very was it a very English scandal the BBC miniseries mm-hmm. with Hugh Grant as Jeremy yeah, yeah, Thorpe. Yeah. And everyone yeah. said, "Oh, Hugh Grant's in his fifties, and when this story starts, Jer- uh, Jeremy Thorpe was like in his mid thirties." And think, yeah, but he was in his mid thirties by sixties yeah. politician standards, yeah, 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 which yeah, is yeah, a yeah. very different age to mid thirties now. Or even like when you watch Hitchcock films and see like. Um, you know your James Stewart's and people like that you're like yeah I really can't tell how old this person's meant to be are they are they thir- are they really 40 years senior than the, the their love interest or are <laughs> yes. they supposed to be about the same age I can't tell <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah um so th- these musical interludes they start straight off there's a song called I am the narrator which I think is um it's a good statement of purpose, not just the title, but it's got a Camille Sanson's sample and a paraphrase of Cream by the Wu-Tang Clan, which mm. in terms of announcing the breadth of what you're going to do with this movie, that's pretty great, I think. And it's done over this speeded up montage of uh, people sort of going in and out of a flat that's being used for various illegal activities. It reminded me a bit of... Um, no, it's it's like a it's a scene of a neighborhood. It's a scene of his version of Forest Gate, which, as he once wrapped, uh, doesn't have a forest and doesn't have a gate. Oh, it doesn't have a gate. <laughs> yeah, and it felt very much like the flat scene in City of God. You know, where they show how a flat kind of degenerated from being quite a nice place to live into this drug den over so many years. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, so straight away, you've got a great range of uh, musical references. He's clearly been watching the right films. And I, I just think there's a kind of flair to it. I think w- one of my problems with British social realism is it is made by people who seem to be putting a lot of effort into making this thing look as shit as possible. <laughs> and that really isn't the case with ill manners. No, um, it's a... I mean, because when you go to East London, it's not horrible. Mm. It's, you know, it's surrounded by sparkly buildings. And obviously then there are the places like the little shitty little parks um, where the drug dealers hang out and stuff. Um, But on the whole, it's a nice looking place. So it would be, you know, it's not like St. Maud, which is shot in Scarborough and looks as horrible as Scarborough, you know. now, on the end credits of St Maud, it says shot entirely in London. I wonder what? if the Scarborough Tourist Board were like, you cannot tell us, tell anyone <laughs> where, where you filmed this. <laughs> yes. Maybe that's true. Yeah, that's bizarre. I hadn't spotted that. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it definitely uh, sets the scene as a horrible place, uh, but one that doesn't look... I mean, the, 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 the house, the drugs den, the... A uh, place where all the prostitutes are shooting up and these mm. shady deals going all over the place. Then it cuts into that uh, that lovely close up of um, Ed, the drug dealer's phone, isn't it? Where there's mm. a there, he's got people called um, he's got contacts called once a week and liability. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's one of the great classic East End insults. You fucking liability. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> there is a great cast in Eve. I mean, we've mentioned Keith Coggins and Ed Skrine, but obviously the the star role is uh, Riz Ahmed, the extraordinary mm. Riz Ahmed, isn't it? He really is extraordinary. He doesn't yeah. get to do much until the second half of the film, really. He's, he's very much in Ed's shadow. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, there's always an intensity to his performances. Completely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I, I think I'm probably the only person who, of his two roles last year playing uh, musicians who are suddenly struck down by disabilitating illnesses. Uh, I much preferred Mogul Mowgli over Sound of Metal, uh, if only because uh, in Mogul Mowgli, he gets to speak in his own voice. Yeah. And instead yeah. of putting on an American accent. Yeah, I'll have to see Morgul Morgley. I did catch up with Sound of Metal a bit back and thought it, it was kind of an odd film because it's like co-written and directed by Darius Marder, but you would think that the writer and director were completely different people because the script is all about how this community of deaf, pe deaf people that Riz Ahmed finds himself at is like a radical community who want to challenge society's perceptions of disability. But what we actually see is like this weird little house on the prairie place where he just fixes mm. gutters and everything. And it's like <laughs> that there's a need to like make a radical statement about disability in the film. There's a need to normalize in the film. And I don't think it really works out where the limits of those things are. No, I, yeah, something didn't sit quite right for me on that film. Um, but, uh, uh, well, watch Mogul Mowgli, but be warned, British misery drama. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can go for that. I can go for that. <laughs> I think my favourite kind of social realist films are the ones where there's just like one really incongruous star in it. And it's like, it goes back to my love of the Italian social realist films, which always start off with, you know, Anna Magnani is a housewife and you think no she isn't but within about three <laughs> seconds of watching it you've bought it completely yeah um yeah yeah so he's great in it and uh obviously also a rapper um yes as, of course as yeah you said like Ed Screen so I don't, I don't know how many other rappers have main roles there are obviously a few popping up here and there in mm. in bit parts but there's a yeah uh, one significant one we'll come on to later yeah, yeah. Uh, Ahmed had collaborated with Plan B uh, on some music before this as well, because they did the theme for Shifty, a little low-budget British movie that Ahmed did with Daniel Mays. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So it's it's kind of, I think part of the strength of the movie is that for once in this country's fairly chaotic film industry, you have a guy who was making films with, you know, his childhood friend, a guy mm -hmm. who he'd done, worked on some music with, his own godfather. There is a kind of confidence to it. It's like, yeah, I'm the director. These people are on the same page as me. This is the story well, we're telling. Isn't that very much like Nil by Mouth, why that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, Gary Oldman was... Um you know, obviously lived this life or it was at least, at least around these sort of people that he well, the mm. sort of people in Nil by Mouth, not the sort of people in Ill Manners. Um, and yeah, that was filled with his, obviously his sisters in it. And yes, no yeah. doubt, you know, some of the other uh, bit partners and um, non-professional actors were people that he knew personally. 
I think there's a warmth to it. I can see why people don't do it that often because it always makes me think of, you know, people like Shane Meadows and Pete Strickland who use actors who they know personally who maybe don't mm. appear in a lot of other directors' films. And with Shane Meadows, I mean, all of his ensemble, all of his regulars are so fucking good. But it seems like it took about a decade for people to start casting Vicky McClure in other stuff because there's there's like this feeling in the British film industry where if you do a lot of working class roles, it's like... Yeah oh, maybe they're just some chav kid. Maybe they're not acting. Like, maybe they don't have to try. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It just takes so long to break through that, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Mm. Definitely true. But, you know, I I think Ahmed uh, was at exactly the right point in his career to do something with Plan B, because it's like it reconnects him a bit with his roots in hip-hop, uh, Ahmed, uh, with his roots in hip-hop. But also by that point, he had done Four Lions. He was being talked mm. about as a major sort of up-and-coming British talent. So it, it they kind of feed off each other nicely. It's just at that right moment, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's great. He's great. I'll, I'll watch mm. him in pretty much anything these days unless he does a Marvel movie. <laughs> He turned up Which I'm sure he will. In, in I'm Venom. sure he will. Oh, he turned, he's, already, he's already done a Marvel movie. He, he was kind of, yeah, he was the baddie in Venom, which is kind of Marvel orbital, I guess. Uh, I've, I haven't watched a Marvel movie since Howard the Duck. So. <laughs> yes, true got, fact. Out, got out when the going was good, I see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when next? Yeah. So there's like there's like two scores to this. There's the uh, music that became part of the Ill Manners album, uh, which we'll get onto. There's an instrumental score which includes popular classic FM favourites like "Your Mother Was a Prostitute," <laughs> "See It Didn't Kill Me, Did It," and of course, <laughs> "Did You Just Call Me a Cunt?" <laughs> That's all. I haven't listened to the instrumental album. I don't think it's. Um... That, that, that's all instrumental then is it yeah um, yeah it's like a, a i guess a more conventional film score without any right. other rapping yeah cool yeah um actually i think i've got it but i just I mean, maybe i've listened to it i don't know i certainly didn't listen to it in preparation for this didn't seem necessary but um the actual album few... ill manners bangs though doesn't it that's a really oh it's brilliant album. yeah yeah it's brilliant which has yes uh, a number of guest spots on it, as you know, you would expect from a hip hop album. But one extraordinary guest spot, which I was very glad to see crop up in the film, John Cooper Clark. John Cooper Clark, what a wonderful, wonderful cameo that is. Mm. I mean, I'm not, I can't say I'm a fan of his work, but he is definitely a national treasure. Mm. It's always a, always nice to see pop up on anything, really. Um, you know, I don't like poetry. Therefore, I do not like, <laughs> I will not listen to a John yeah. Cooper Clark album. But, you know, doing a feature on a on a Plan B track, it's good. I it's like very it. cool, yeah. He's, got, he's got such a great voice. He does, yeah, yeah. And it, it reconnects him with where he came through, which is, you know, doing punk gigs. And I think it takes mm. a certain degree of courage to stand in front of a load of amphetamined up like stiff little fingers fans or whatever and say i'm going to read some poems to you 
but he is just absolutely compelling and you can imagine he can get an audience on his side in seconds. Yeah, um, I do wonder if the Earl of Essex in uh, Man- um, uh, what's the fucking place? Manor Hill? Manor Hill? Manor Park? Manor Park? Yeah, like I do I wonder if the, uh, I do wonder if the Earl of Essex in Manor Park um, I know they did have gigs uh, right. it was shot it was shut the year that this was filmed, so they it obviously just shut, and then they used it as a to film in. Yeah, um, and I I know they had some gigs, but I don't know if they'd have been able to get someone like John Cooper Clark in. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, they might have. I don't know. I don't know. You'd be Wait, surprised not... who you can book with the uh, if you with the if it's, if it's about who you know a lot of the time, isn't it? I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just assume it's one of those things like the. Uh... The vault house in Twin Peaks, where they've just got a good booking good manager. Nine inch nails turning up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I, it's, it's the least realistic thing about Twin Peaks. That. <laughs> There's. Uh, I mean, the Earl of Essex. It's. it's I was wondering. It, it must have been shut by the time they filmed this because. Or maybe maybe the, the fact that they filmed this film in there is why it's shut. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> dark legacy. I went to yeah, no, my favourite pub and I closed and it, it down. Ha- yeah, and it shut down because everyone goes, fucking hell, is that what it's like in there? <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Landlords shagging prostitutes in the beer, in the beer cellar. Worst yeah. of all, they have an open mic poetry night. Yeah. <laughs> You're not saying John Cooper Clark was open mic. Why is that cyber goth doing there with the, the green uh, hair oh yeah that is quite odd isn't it yeah. Mm. yeah yeah he doesn't look like the crowd at all no he, he must just be a john cooper clark fan i can, I can buy that um but you, i think you'd at least bring some mates along for moral support if you're gonna go to a pub like that even if it was <laughs> to watch your, your favorite performance poet <laughs> Yeah. How come I, I no one's never... beating him up? How come no one in a pub like that is beating up a cyber goth? <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> it ain't Camden. So here's what I was wondering, though, when we started to review this, because uh, I didn't see this film when it came out. So I watched it for the first time for this show. My, I wanted to catch it when it came out. It just slipped through the net. I don't know. It was mm-hmm. one of those things. But my main memory of it coming out was that absolutely every single commentator had to like talk about this in regards to the uh, English riots which of course were 10 years ago this year and uh, yeah. the British press has decided to mark this occasion by mentioning them for the first time in 10 years well it uh, starts the film starts with um, footage of people being interviewed after it isn't it? Or, oh yes it does but, doesn't it and, yeah. yeah that is genuine isn't it yeah 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 it doesn't um, contextualise it if you don't know what it what the footage is from. Mm. But there's a shot of um, two people having an argument outside a shop that's you know on a street that's been trashed or whatever. Yeah. Um, about what caused it, and then there's an interview which I think I remember from Newsnight at the time um, of um, uh, some young guy talking about you know what what needs to be done to stop kids growing up wanting to riot and break yeah. the place up. Um, which, you know, is 
very uh, optimistic of him. I mean, I, th I think the main thing that we've done is for the, their parents to stop voting Tory governments in. <laughs> yes, yeah, <that's laughs> yeah. But that 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 is interesting because that this seems to be one of the few cultural artifacts which actually said, you know, why did this happen? You know, why did the people actually do it? Because there, there was a lot after it. There was a lot of pontificating um, about from people who had no knowledge of this about what was causing it. Uh, David Starkey famously dropped a tab of acid mm. before he went on to Newsnight <laughs> and he said, it's because the, the blackest white and the whitest black man yeah. in the universe is turned inside out. It's doing my head in. That was his answer. And um, mm. But, you know, there seems to be a reluctance to admit that this had social causes in the same way that everyone now agrees that, say, the Brixton riots did. Well, David Starkey doesn't get to um, put his point of view across in this film, which I suppose some people might see as a flaw. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I wonder if he'd watch it and think, yeah, told you, see? You know um, what? The, the thing that absolutely kills me about that David Starkey thing is I remember the week before it, he'd been complaining about uh, the Tudors, you know, the the kind of bonkathon Henry right. VIII series on stars. And he said... Yeah, this is happening because television, people who make television have no respect for experts. You know, they wouldn't call the historian in to look at this. And then a week after this, he gets this phone call from Newsnight saying, hello, David, uh, would you like to talk about inner city violence and drugs gangs? And at no point does he think, oh, no, I'm not an expert in that. I should, <laughs> I should talk about that. You know, he probably just put the phone down and say, yeah, if, if it goes well, I can probably busk a bit of material about Anne of Cleves and, yeah, just wing it. What were they thinking, booking him? It's so fucking weird. He's yeah. like, he's not even a particularly good historian. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fucking hell. World's gone shit, hasn't it? And it's all because of, he's a, it's partly because of his news programs booked to give their points of view. When, it is you know, largely because terrible. I think that if you want to understand what has happened in Britain uh, over the past decade, you have to remember that about 10 years ago, someone invented a machine that would allow ordinary people to tell newspaper columnists what they thought of them. And mm -hmm. that has turned every single person in the British media's brains into porridge. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's tragic. But when, when this came out, The Observer did a feature where they handily uh, got some of the worst cunts in Britain to say what they thought of ill manners and um yeah they, why why it's it's pretty impressive reading it's like a, a it, it's just a catalogue of denial I think oh, remind, if, remind me who the worst cunts in Britain were in uh, 2012 well some, some of them are all there's right. too many to count now <laughs> Some of them are all right. They got Goldie in. I've got nothing against Goldie. But okay. the, the byline on this, rather than give the byline to whatever miserable fucker had to actually assemble these things, uh, the Observer byline is credited to Lethal Bizzle and Edwina Curry. I love Lethal Bizzle. Lethal love Bizzle lethal and Bizzle. Edwina Curry, though. I mean, I love Lethal Bizzle. Um, it's, the, it's the feature so, you never expected. No, 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 no. I, I, I can't abide Edwina Curry. <laughs> um, 
Oh, I don't know. Old Leith, old Leith, old, old Dench man himself. Very <laughs> work out. Um, yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some people I like in this, but they're, they're a, I mean, Torby fucking Young's here. Ugh. And he talks yes. about, this is the incredible thing about it. He talks about personal responsibility and how the film, you know, says that, you know, if you, if you do something bad, if you commit a crime, that's your fault. Don't put it on the system, which I'm not convinced is the message of the film at all. But anyway, and right. you think, but you think that people's propensity towards criminality is defined by their skull shape. You know, you have a <laughs> yeah. literal fucking eugenicist. Where yeah, is yeah, the yeah. personal responsibility in that? You can be the nicest guy in the world, but if you just happen to have a sloping Cro-Magnon brain pan or whatever Victorian bollocks he believes in, you're a criminal. Sorry, mate. Yeah, I, th- I think Toby Young must have left his brain at the, that pirate exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember that amazing story <laughs> about him. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to disprove any kind of theory that moral character is hereditary, just consider that Toby Young's dad was really smart and cool. Mm. Who was that? <laughs> I'm sure he was, but I've forgotten who it was since I lost. It was Michael Young, the uh, Labour Party affiliated philosopher and coiner of the term oh. meritocracy. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. I don't know if I ever knew that. Um, yeah. God knows what went wrong. But anyway, so it's like... Well, you know, Alan Corrin, Giles Corrin. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, God. Yeah. But it is, I mean, it, it is one of those things where, as you say, it does have those clips from the aftermath of the riots in. It is aiming to comment on that, but I think ripping it out of that context, ripping it out of a context where Toby Young is being asked to say what this says about inner city youth after the riots, has done it a power of good, really. I don't think it's a narrowly political film. I think it, whisper it, I think it has a kind of timeless quality. It's it's a soap opera primarily. I, um, Plan B said that he he told the story because it was a story that needed to be told to explain what uh, drives people or what, what not, it's not even what drives people to do what they do in this film, mm. is it? It's, it's, it shows all sorts of different things. It shows bad people having moments of redemption, yeah. which, you know, by normal narrative standards, they don't necessarily deserve. Mm. Um it shows people uh, acting horribly violently by accident, by coercion. Um, it, it plays clever tricks with um, timeline as well. Like when you first see Katya leave her baby on the train. Yes. Uh, yeah. You assume you assume she's abandoning her baby, mm. just, be, just purely to abandon her baby because she can't, you know, look after it or whatever. And then very shortly after that, it's quite a subtle rewind, but you realise that. You find out that um, she was just trying to trick her ex-pimp into thinking that she was getting on the train. Yeah. But, but she got it wrong and fucked it up and left her kid on the train. So, um, yeah. So it, it's not saying, it, it, maybe it's saying like, think twice about what you see from your point of view. Because what, what Aaron Rizamo's character sees from his point of view is a woman abandoning her baby. And then when the camera shows the same events from a different angle, you know, you see what really happened, and it's a bit more tragic than that. 
Yeah, and a lot of the reviews at the time mentioned Pulp Fiction, and I'm sure uh, Ben Drew probably is a Pulp Fiction fan, but it's also kind of rooted in the way that he tells stories in his raps, that something like Mr. Drug Dealer, the one that introduced Keith Coggins' character, is basically one long, but hold on, let's rewind this and look at it from another perspective moment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's more about introducing Chris, isn't it? His uh, yeah. protege turned, um, well, because then, cause then um, is it, before the film starts, um, Kirby has spent, was it, several years in prison, 15 years of that? Uh, it's during a which long time, stretch. Yeah. Yeah, during which time Chris has taken over and become, you know, Mr. Big, top man, top boy. I watched and, all about uh, Eve recently. I didn't realise that this was essentially the same plot, but it basically is, isn't it? I've never seen all about Eve, nor do I know what it's about. <laughs> so, <laughs> apart, apart from apart from Showgirls, is apparently based on all about Eve. So, if it's, are you, do you mean that it's the same plot as Showgirls? I mean, now you mention it, yeah. Let's push this. Let's push the board. <laughs> let's double down on this. <laughs> right. So, um, well, there's no scene in a swimming pool, but there is like... <laughs> there is sex uh, there... that is even less appetising yes. than the swimming pool <laughs> scene in Showgirls, yes. Uh, yeah. Um... <laughs> uh, so I'll get pushed downstairs. Are there any uh, monkeys? Is there, is there a woman who wears a dress and a, a, that makes her tits go borrow? <laughs> mm, I don't think so. No, it's not, it's not much like Showgirls. Is it there has... anyone in, in Ill Manners who was in Saved by the Bell? <laughs> no. Although I think Zach Morris is obviously the inspiration for Ed Scrine's character, right? Yeah, That's absolutely that sense, what yeah. Zach Morris does on his time off. Yeah, I would think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't... I, isn't there a famous episode of Saved by the Bell where one of them uh, gets addicted to diet pills or caffeine pills or something. Yes, it's incredible. It's uh, the, I think there's an excerpt of it in uh, You Don't Know Me. There is, isn't the, there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the documentary about showgirls that's that came I, out a couple yeah, of years Yeah, that's how back. I know about it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, so there's drugs. Yeah, yeah. There's some drugs. There's, there's quite, quite a lot of drugs in Ill Manners. Yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, should we move on? I think, yeah, we, we've kind of hit a, a wall dead end that one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, it, it made me think sort of forwards and backwards a lot. I mean, you mentioned in your reviews on Letterboxd, you said that some people kind of have a problem with the fact that it doesn't have one linear plot. Um, but it actually reminded me a lot I, I, I think i might have said it uh, people might have a problem with it not having a plot um rather, well, rather a, than a, I've, yeah. added, I've added the word linear because i'm pretentious but that's basically <laughs> your sentiment there i think well more no more the point that more the point that it's yeah i suppose yeah, yeah i suppose it's my sentiment yeah yeah um, and that and that comment that some people have a problem with that was based on zero research so you know <laughs> citations definitely needed in that case but I assume it was a matter of assumption. I, I just know that most people don't like this fucking film. Well, what the the structure of it reminded me of, and the way that it hops back and forth between all these characters who were in the same neighbourhood and having this sort of bleak existence, it reminded me a bit of the Alan Clark film Road, which uh, I've not seen that one. 
you would love road you would love road so much look it's a british social realist drama set on a council estate and i gave it five stars i gave it five stars that's how good it is i mean it's it's like i said it's like a soap opera it's it's it's, it's eastenders but after dark yeah um very much, so yeah. you know if you like if you're all right with soaps and their way of uh you know think think about soaps to keep uh, production easy is that they tend to have each episode uh three stories that they cut between yeah so there's not necessarily that much crossing between characters interaction between the characters in a single episode from those three different storylines mm. um so this is like several weeks worth of a soap all put together in fact well, i think one of the most uh incredible bits in it is the scene that um the long scene that plays while pity the plight the john cooper clark song is playing yeah um which shows pretty much the entirety of um of jake the kid mm. uh, getting taken under marcel's wing um you know being being uh in in still in still in you in you no what's the word in inveigled what's the word you know <laughs> brought into the world of gang violence and also initiated. like yeah initiated yeah loads of like, all the p the money the, the pound um and the drugs and the getting his first getting his first fuck today as the lyric goes um bust his first nut today lovely lyric uh <laughs> resulting in that unfortunate murder and yeah ultimately in his own death all within i don't know how long that sequence lasts so it's about maybe 10 minutes and the fact that it's this self-contained little story like that could be a short film in itself that section is really horrible because you're only just getting to know this kid. You see his potential, I suppose. You certainly yeah. certainly see his uh, vulnerability. Mm. You know, that bit where um, where Marcel gives him the gun and tells him to kill an unnamed person who turns out to be Kirby. Um, and uh, Jake suddenly goes, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I've just been <laughs> acting hard all day. I love that. Um, and... Uh, and even that even that sequence has a little kind of pulp fictiony rewind so yeah. that you see the same scene from two different angles you have no idea that they were happening at the same time um until it's suddenly oh it's, oh, it's so good it's such a great little sequence um, and that's and part of the reason why I think it, it broke through my resistance to a lot of these films because if this was presented as a standard drama which has no musical element whatsoever and it just has these stories i think my immediate reaction would be all right but is it is it really this bleak do all these things always happen at the same time and it's like mm. the fact that you can use the music to compress time or rewind time or control the narrative in some ways makes that complaint irrelevant it's like these are all things that you know, really happen in the world. They maybe don't happen, you know, back to back, but then they don't happen in the film back to back either. It, it buys it some artistic license to get past that sort of, that thing the British social realist films always do that I hate, which is stamp their foot and insist, no, this is absolutely what the world is like right now. It, it gives it that artistic element that I think makes it more justifiable and more interesting as social commentary yeah i've always wondered um 
uh, is it Peter Mullins who made um, Tyrannosaur? Um, uh, Paddy Considine directed Tyrannosaur. Oh, that's right. Yeah, of course. Um, Peter Mullins, the, the guy in it. Mm-hmm. So it's him and Olivia Colman in it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I've always wondered the fact, the fact that that opens with Peter Mullins kicking his dog to death. Is that like, <laughs> like, hello, here is the most cliched British misery porn ever. <laughs> it's going to begin with a drunk guy kicking his dog to death. It lets think, you know what you're in for. It's a good film. It is uh, a good um, film. I think I, I read an interview with Considine where he said he was mainly interested in thinking, you know, what's the worst thing I can introduce someone doing and have it have the audience sort of reeled back in in with them you know can they actually like this guy after he does that and i think yeah ultimately a bit yeah i don't think so not when you've got olivia coleman opposite him you're never gonna prefer him are you to olivia coleman i'm not saying he's the best guy but he's, <laughs> he's better than he looks at the start and Peter Mullen is one of my favourite actors too. I absolutely yeah, adore he's very that good. guy. So he's very good. So the other thing in that sequence is that's where we really get to know um, Jodie and Carmel, who mm. are, no, sorry, not Carmel, Chanel, Jodie and Chanel, who are. I wish there was a sitcom spin-off about yes. them, and I and I, it would have. To, I think it would have to be called "Am I a Dickhead," <laughs> which is, seems to be her catch, seems to be Jodie's catchphrase. I think it that that's great too because they are uh, like Jake. They are at the start. They are like a, a shaft of innocence in this very bleak world. They are just kids doing just kid stuff. But with Jake, it gets taken and corrupted into something else, and that, of course, rebounds on them. But it's such a beautiful mm. piece of structural paralleling. He's got to do another film, right? Plan B. It would be maddening if he just did this. Uh, but you know, there was a Guardian article yesterday, wasn't there, saying just pointing out so how many British directors make one film and you just never, yeah, absolutely. they never get to do anything yeah. else. It's really, really sad. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know if they came up with any reasons why that is or if they uh suggested any way of getting around it, but I mean, it, it's really odd, it's really odd because I mean, we're still waiting for Gary Oldman's second film, aren't we? That's very true. Yeah, every sort of five years he makes, he, he says he's definitely got that by your pick of Edward Moybridge set up and right. never happens, never happens. That doesn't sound that miserable, does it? I did know Edward Moybridge had a bloody bleak life. He's the guy who uh, did the photo, uh, pho- photograph someone running, yeah? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the flying horse photographs and all of those sort of pre-cinematic yeah. stuff, yeah. He had, um, he was one of the, uh, quite a few guys in America at that time who worked on the railroads or in the mines, I forget which, and he had a traumatic brain injury that completely altered his personality. And he was on trial for murder much later. He, he was, And it was found that, yeah, he did kill the guy, but I think he was found innocent uh, through diminished responsibility because they successfully argued that this injury he had altered his personality to the extent that he can't be held responsible. So he wasn't just trying to take a burst shot of a of his of a murder. No, no. He wasn't okay. trying to have a series of arty photographs of a guy falling to the floor. <laughs> you never know. Been, I guess. Um where do you want to go next? 
Uh, well, we're about now in five minutes in. I guess we could sort of think about wrapping this up. Uh, we, we have took some detours, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> We've barely spoken about the, about the content of the film, but um, um, <laughs> <laughs> something that, that struck a chord with me is the bit where Aaron's um, social worker advises him to take his cap off um, and he might attract less um, negative police attention. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because when... Um, one memorable night I spent in the East End, I went to um, Lee Hurst's Backyard Comedy Club mm. and I was having a really bad hair day. So I was definitely wearing a hat that day. And he does not like people wearing hats in his club. And he told me to take it off from the stage several times. And I was sort of, you know, and then put it back on. And, and, and he, uh, like, during the second or third interval, or whatever, he came up to me and said, look, mate, look, look mate. Um, he's another prick, isn't he? Um, yes, yes. He really is a fucking prick. I was like, well, what have you got against hats, Lee Hurst? And and he was like, well, you don't understand. It's the East End. Uh, anyone who wears a hat is trouble. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> the East End regularly I, I, beset, by, beset by marauding hat wearers. Yes, we all remember that yeah, new story. But I did... I did say to him, look, I'm having a bad hair day. Not that you'd understand that. Um, somehow, <laughs> somehow managed not to get kicked out of his club. Uh, what a wanker. <laughs> That's great. He's probably doing the same thing now for people who've been vaccinated, isn't he? Yeah. Just sort of seeing if you've got a slightly sore upper arm and just booting yeah. you out of his club. Yeah, it would not surprise me. I know a lot of people who work with him, but they're they're in it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think they I think they have I hope they struggle with their conscience over it. I mean it's a big it's a nice big venue. I can see why people would want to use it and work there. But it's so weird, when your boss is Lee Hurst. Yeah, you think the 90s were maybe that last time where you could just look into a TV and music career for a couple of years and be set up for life. That does not happen so much anymore, I think. No, so now you have to become a, a right-wing twat on Twitter. Yes. And uh, then you're guaranteed work. Yes. You go too far. Um. What else did I want to say about it? Um, the uh, another bit that struck a chord was when a flute playing beatboxer turns up because we got one of them down down underneath of the uh, station. Oh no way! <laughs> a little busker who plays flute and beatboxes. It's quite good. Um, <laughs> there was a story recently uh, where people found out that Andre Benjamin had signed up for Noah Baumbach's new adaptation of White Noise by Don DeLillo. Uh, because they spotted him wandering around the filming locations playing a flute. And apparently that's just, right. that's what he always does now. If you want to know where Andre Benjamin is, just look for a guy playing a flute. He always wanders around playing a flute. That's his thing. Uh, I don't think it would look incongruous. Mm. He looks like the sort of guy who would play a flute. Absolutely. Just walking, yeah. while walking down the street. I don't think there is any way that Andre Benjamin could blend in, really, is there? He might as well play it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I bet he goes incognito sometimes, but, you know, such is fame. <laughs> yeah, got nothing against people dressing up. I, I do have people, 
I do have something against people being uh, ostentatiously twatish. And yeah. Just like, you know, being, but, you know, if you're Andre 3000, you can do whatever the fuck you like. You completely can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I feel like my sense of what uh, is appropriate to wear at any given time has been like destroyed by a childhood watching Doctor Who, but you know, mm, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of feel I should dress a little bit more flamboyantly. I don't know if flamboyant is quite the word, but certainly, um, you know, I'm getting on a bit. I've got to find ways of keeping <laughs> keeping my look exciting. I suppose I've, I've looked like this for 25 years. You know got to change it up a bit eventually surely yeah you you earn the right to do it after a while don't you yeah yeah I can. yeah um what else we're we gonna say about this uh da, 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 da. i like the bit where um <laughs> i like the bit where uh jody and chanel are at kirby's house and he brings in vodka and orange for them and says drinky poos because it reminded me of um uh, my friend Nathan Cassidy's best ever tweet, which went along the lines of drinky poo. Oh, yeah, cool. Very nice. OK, how about an eaty poo? Mm, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. A very, uh, very Pasolini-esque mental image there. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I love this film. I did wonder at the end when um, when Aaron's reading the letter from his mum mm. in that sad, sad moment, that's true. Um, did you, could you figure out what it was that it says in there on that? Because you only see like little close-ups of it scrolling past. And there was something about we were involved politically, dot, 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 uh, which unfortunately, tra which tragically um, resulted, dot, 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 I wonder what that was about and why you don't see what it that was. Is, yeah, it's strange, isn't it? It works as a kind of brief impression of what's been happening. I wonder if maybe there was a subplot that they shot that just didn't work and that's mm. all that's left of it. What yeah. I would want is someone to mash up that scene with uh, the letters that Toby Jones gets from home in Bavarian Sound Studio. Oh, I want Riz Ahmed there hearing about the, the, the goshawk nesting in the back garden. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in that same scene, I, uh, the big Ed was ear graffiti. It's like, I mean, were people still writing thingy was ear in 2012? In 2012. No, I, I, mean, I was half expected to say it's a little man with a big nose and his hands poking over the top of a wall. <laughs> It's one of those things, isn't it, where graffiti is now uh, such a recognised art form that even if you're just some twat spraying your name, you've got to like be a bit ambitious, haven't you? You can't yeah. just say you was here. You? No, 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 not, not so, no. Um, why did the phrase watch out there's a Humphrey about spring into my mind? Was that a big graffiti thing? I don't think it was. That was an advert for milk. Set off an extraordinary mind bomb. Yeah, I, that's not <laughs> something I've had to think about for years. Yeah, I don't think there is any milk in this. Um, I'll tell you what, though, in the in the short film version of Michelle, there is a quite horrible joke when the 
pub landlord and his mate are, are shagging Michelle. Mm. Um, what do you call a brass with a runny nose? Full up. Fucking hell. Yes. Yeah. I think he... I don't want this to sound like a criticism because I think in another artist it would be a criticism, but I think Bendry really sort of relishes the really bleak bits of this. And I think... Oh, of course. Of course yeah. he does. And I think I he mean, always if you've heard it, You've music. heard his music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that basically that entire first mini album, um, It's Time for Plan B, is just full of the most horrific imagery. Um, Paint it blacker uh, has that one about the Camden Ripper, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh wow, you've heard that? I, I don't know how like well known that album is because a uh, bootleg, an uh, unofficial bootleg thing, isn't it? It is pretty um, obscure. Yeah, I, I yeah. came to my attention because I remember I did read a blog when uh, "Ill Manners" the song came out and everyone was talking about it as being like the first great processed song of the decade, and someone said it is really hard to like. Uh, reconcile the guy who is writing the first great process song of the decade to the guy who is like dubbing chainsaw sound effects onto a song about a real life serial killer and it's like <laughs> well in theory yes when you hear the actual music maybe not I don't know but then there is a song about that on Painted Blacker isn't there the um, one that samples um, Larrikin Larkin I think um, ugh, what's it called what's it called Knoxville Girl the one, um, yeah, so not the one with Larrikin Love. Larrikin Love, that's what I meant, but it's not that one. It's Knoxville Girl, isn't it? The one that's uh, all about murder ballads and how it's a long standing art form singing ah, about right. murders and that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good song. Um, unfortunately, yeah. followed by Chris Martin's voice on the sample <laughs> <laughs> over, a sum, over a Rick Ross sample on the next track. But he yeah, has. It's a, it's a... He doesn't always have the best taste in collaborators. I mean, we've talked about Riz Ahmed. Yep, great, no problems mm. there. Uh, Ed Skrine, he certainly got a very fine performance out of him in this. But um, there was a remix of um, was it Deepest Shame, uh, which had Ed Sheeran on the remix. I can't stand Ed Sheeran, obviously, like any right-thinking person. But mm. um, he—I will say—he is a good rapper when he does a feature on a on a. If that's uh -oh. what he was doing on that on that song, then he is actually a half decent rapper. So it yeah. did remind me how Ed Sheeran also made his breakthrough with a song about a woman forced into prostitution, just with like a, a mildly different tone. I would say. Oh, just a bit, yeah. Yeah, it's slightly different. Yeah, just like kind of probably number one hit and played on radio all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I wonder how much you have to be a fan of Plan B's uh, darker lyrics to get the most out of Ill Manners. Because I know one of my mates, he doesn't like Ill Manners and he doesn't like um, Plan B's lyrics. Mm. And I think that um he, he finds lines like <laughs> i'll stick you in the eye with a biro the same biro you use to write your fucking gyro um <laughs> he thinks that's stupid um come on man <laughs> whereas it's clearly brilliant yes <laughs>
I think it's one of the things where if you actively disliked Plan B, it would be a problem. But I think if you have no particular like opinion on Plan B, this probably works, right? It's a good film. Uh, I mean, it is a good film. It's a, it's a fucking brilliant film. Like I say it's in my all-time top 27. And um, I... <laughs> <laughs> an important distinction, those 27 from the next three. Yeah, you can't um, possibly like round it out by putting some mere four and a half star films in. That just no. undermines the integrity of the whole operation. Completely different kind of level of, of brilliance. Five star films are the ones that just make me feel things that nothing else does. Yeah. On the whole. Um, anything from Toy Story is a five star film in my book. Absolutely. It's just so lovely. Yeah. It's cool so sign. lovely. Um, to, um, yeah, like I said, Landmine Goes Click, which is one of the most horrible things I've ever seen, but it, it's so shocking and just leaves you absolutely shattered. So, you know, um, as long as something makes me feel like, it, and a four and a half star is a film that makes me think about it ages afterwards and I want to look up, look up stuff about it and read more about it and, you know, listen to the commentary tracks. I just want, want more want more of it um, yeah. because it was so brilliant. And um, that, that, that's my two levels of absolute brilliance. But the five-star ones are almost invariably the ones that make me go, fucking hell, that's knocked me out. It's just like completely thrilled me for two hours or whatever. Or it's made, the, made me the closest I've ever come in my life to crying, uh, like Dancer in the Dark. But, yes. You know, yeah. it's never actually drawn a tear because I am a cold dead bitch. <laughs> I think that's a great note to end on. Just uh, not not Thank even you. the Good. the sentiment, just the phrase "cold dead bitch." Cold dead bitch. Yeah, yeah. Um, just yeah. Quietly, Which, I funnily enough, find... is uh, how dancing in the dark ends. I can't believe it. <laughs> it's probably a lyric on this album too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yes, uh, if you enjoyed that, listeners, and my God, why wouldn't you? Um, you can subscribe to our Patreon where you get a bonus episode of Pop Screen every month, access to our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, uh, my Doctor Who reviews, and also any outtakes that uh, that we do, which I think are worth sharing. Um, so, so some of the things that are maybe, you know, libelous um (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh but until next week when we come back with more pop screen i've been graham i'm cliff and uh, you can find me at the devil times five horror podcast on soundcloud and we'll see you next week It seems like kids these days aren't going through an awkward stage. It's really not fair because Lord knows we did. So what were you like as a kid? What claws did? I didn't understand my vagina. I was psychotic. (laughs) I was out of my mind. But hey, if there's one thing that connects us all, that just brings people together, it's our cringe. It's being cringy. This is Awkward Stage, the podcast that dives into the most embarrassing moments from the most awkward stages of our life. I'm Nicole. And I'm Alina. And we're your hosts and the trusted guides to draw the deeply buried cringe out of each of our wonderfully awkward guests. New episodes every Wednesday. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Okay, the trailer's ending, so just say something not awkward. Okay. I love you. Perfect.